When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! Jesus. <laughs> Isn't it a good week, listeners? The heat has broken, the summer has begun, we are lying in our hammocks and we are enjoying the month of August and this is Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week with me, Felix Salmon Effusion, with Jordan Weisman, the Moneybox columnist at Slate, and with Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, available in all good bookstores in about a month. Uh, A little bit less, yeah. So pre-order it on Amazon. Leave it a five-star review even though you haven't read it. Please do. Um, We are going to be talking about all manner of awesome things. We're going to talk about Uber raising the white flag in China, the largest and most promising car sharing market in the world, we are going to be talking about how employers in Massachusetts can no longer ask you how much you're earning. And we are going to talk about the interesting story of Jet.com, which some people might have heard of. Um, Felix, I, I, mean, I don't want to interrupt you, but I don't think you e- explained to the listeners what the edition is this week. Oh, Oh, we need a title. Well, we don't need a title, but let's go for it. We could go for the untitled. This edition. is this is known. This is officially the scuttlebutt edition of Slate Money. Why is the scuttlebutt edition of Slate Money is a question which you can send by email to Jordan Weissman, <laughs> and he will answer you. I, I was voting for the Felix's heavily caffeinated edition of Slate Money. <laughs> scuttlebutt's just a good word. Scut- okay. we, it's a winning scut- word. Scuttlebutt is an awesome word, and it's not used nearly awesome, n- nearly enough. I feel it's one of those words like malarkey, which we just need to bring back into general conversation. Agreed, agreed. So, Jordan, you, you tell, me, Biden. Right. tell me about um, Jet.com. Yeah, Jet.com. Jet uh, is a e-commerce website that was founded by one of the co-founders of diapers.com. Um, not very long ago. It's quite a young little baby website. Yeah, I think it went into operation about a year ago. It was uh, it raised about $500 million with really big ambitions. That's a lot of money to raise before you go into production. Yeah, it, they came out of the gate saying they were going to try and take on Amazon. And and the backstory here is that diapers.com was a competitor with Amazon early on until Amazon essentially waged a price war, cut its own diaper prices by about a third, and then bought up diapers.com for about $500 million. Um, one of the co-founders then, Mark Lore, was sort of sitting around trying to figure out what to do next. And he said, F it. 
I'm going to go take on Amazon again. With, F it? F it? F what? F is it. that what he said? He said F it? You know what? I, I had a moment where I was thinking about, occasionally we do get complaints about profanity, but he said, fuck it, I'm going to take on. I'm and then go- you realize, I don't care. Yeah. So, so, so after having failed to compete with Amazon once, he said to himself, I know. I'm an expert in how not to compete with Amazon, so I'm going to do it again. I mean, but that's not necessarily the... I mean, if, if you think failure breeds success in any meaningful way, like you learn from your failures and previously... He found, and he found investors with half a billion dollars to back him in this venture. It so, wasn't a yeah. failure, guys. He, no, was, he got bought out. Well, so this is... so. Well, he's about to, but so they decided they were going to take no, on I mean, Am- diapers.com got bought oh, yeah, out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, diapers.com did get bought, bought out, but it, you know, it didn't win its... It didn't go toe-to-toe and win against Amazon. It right. kind of surrendered by selling. But this is standard standard startup approach to success is to get bought out. A lot of the startups, like their goal it was, is to get so, bought. So, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the ostensible girl versus the actual girl. The ostensible girl is to win and to become number one. And that's what everyone is funding. And then the secret actual girl is, yeah, I'll get bought out and I'll make a few hundred million yeah. dollars. And, yeah. so, and so Jet is looking like it's going to be a somewhat similar story. So the the uh, we'll, we'll so get, explain. Can you explain yeah. what Jet was the, and how it was different from every other e-commerce? Exactly. Story? So Jet, well, its business models changed a bit over time, but when it first changed well, a lot over time, yeah, a, a and, lot. and and over a short amount of time since it's only like a, <laughs> so, it's barely a toddler. It's only a year old. So it started yeah. off, and they were going to be sort of like. Costco or Sam's Club for the internet. You were going to pay a $50 fee and then you were going to get really well discounted merchandise. And part of it was just they had a discount upfront on everything they were selling. Well, I should say everything that was being sold on their market. They Jet wasn't really selling stuff. It was a market for vendors to come onto and sell you toiletries and soap and detergent and towels and diapers and whatever else. Um, but on top of just the discount, they had this thing called a dynamic shopping cart. And the idea was that you know, everyone pays this premium to get really great fast shipping from someone like Amazon. And there are lots of vendors, there are online e-commerce companies that are trying to ship you things as fast as possible. We're going to use um, our, you know, algorithm building skills to figure out ways to get you stuff cheapest to say, okay, well, if you're buying this, you know, item from this vendor, if you also buy this other item from another vendor, fill up with towels and soap, then if we'll figure out the easiest, cheapest way to ship all that to you, maybe it'll take a little bit longer, or maybe you're going to have to buy more in bulk, but we're going to shave, find ways to shave another 5% off of your yeah. order. So I actually applied to work at Jet.com before yeah. they changed their business model entirely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this is the, the thing I pushed back on. I was like, well, how are you going to be able to compete with Amazon, which is famous for like lowballing its its you know, its providers, its its stuff. And their theory was on the one hand, this fifty dollar membership fee was gonna just generate an enormous amount of money. Yeah. And give and then they had a lot of you know, people who had given them money to to, to start this out, this venture. And on the other hand, they were going to sort of game the shipping. Yeah. They really, really thought that like they could get people to buy more because the more they bought, the more they'd shave, save on shipping, and that that would be the sort of key to it. And I, you know, I can kind of see the logic to that. Just uh, but although it, in the end, they kind of gave up on that, right? Well, well sort of. Well, they kept the dynamic shopping cart, but uh, those words while wow, coming out of my mouth. Anyway, they kept the dynamic shopping cart. But I that, have this <laughs> vision in my head of like some magical Harry Potter shopping cart, yeah. which just kind of changes and transmogrifies well, see, in real time. That's exactly how they were imagining. But yeah. let me just say that the the yeah. thing that I worried about then and yeah. I still worry about now is that both of these ideas that you get a bunch of people becoming members yeah. and that you'd have so many providers 
that you could really do this dynamic shopping cart well requires a certain like it requires a what's it called a uh, critical mass yeah which is like everyone well, like they, everyone has to be on jet.com well, for this to actually work and they were planning to lose money for a long time to try and get to that critical get mass to everyone eventually. yeah um but so they eventually dropped the membership fee and they were just going to rely on the magical shopping cart um and it you know i i guess I don't know. You know, it's not clear if they thought things weren't looking like they're going to work out. But Walmart is apparently now in talks with them to buy the company for a rumored $3 billion. Okay. So literally the day before the rumored Walmart talks started splashing all over Bloomberg, I put out a random tweet and I can't even remember why. But it said in full, remember jet.com. I I saw that tweet. And I was like. Do you remember like there was this thing and it launched with a huge fanfare and then it kind of just sank without a trace I, and then I got a couple of sort of sad replies saying oh I still use them <laughs> <laughs> and then literally the next day we we hear that Walmart is thinking about buying them for three billion dollars which depending on who you read is either a failure or a proof that it worked well see now let's go back to that fanfare you mentioned because it was outrageous and amazing i don't know if you guys ever went to penn station in around the time of the launch of jet.com i try to avoid well, the jet yeah. penn station well, if, as you're, much as if you're like a yeah. sap like me looking at the big board waiting for your track number to be called everywhere you looked for like three months Jet.com advertisements were plastered on every possible surface. With its weird little umlaut slash smiley face. Yeah, all that purple. And I was just like, (laughs) wow, they're spending a shit ton of money. associating themselves with the unbelievably pleasant experience of Penn Station. That was the thing. They were like, like, our shipping is a bit like the trains coming into Penn Station. You're never quite sure when it's going to arrive, but it'll probably get there eventually. Okay, that's true. But I also think that if you think about the demographic they're going after, the Accela Writers is exactly so what I, they're looking for. I kind of that makes it strange. I thought Walmart, they were going after like Midwestern housewives. That is how I. So here's the thing about hmm. the story that is a little bit confusing to me. People have been talking about how Jet is going to help Walmart, uh, you know, give them a new brand that will appeal to non-Walmart customers. Right? Walmart has a little bit of trouble reaching, you know, upper middle class to wealthy clientele. There's ten. Their their customers tend to be kind of in the below seventy thousand well, dollars a year. Range. Walmart has a has trouble reaching people who don't like shopping at Walmart. Exactly. Walmart has trouble reaching people who, A, don't want to get in their car, drive to Walmart, which takes as long as it takes, park in the car park, you know, push their cart all around Walmart for however long that takes, check out, go back, drive home. You know, this is a thing which, on a good day for most people, will take you at least an hour, and for some people will take significantly longer. And so that's the first thing. And second thing, like some people just don't live near a Walmart. Well, also, I... Just in terms of e-commerce, they're they're supposedly having trouble kind of breaking out of their typical wall. They're they're having trouble reaching beyond their typical Walmart customer online. And so I've been seeing people say Jet is going to assist them in this kind of open up a new market. But Jet itself pitched uh, was was built for middle income shoppers, people who really had to worry about shipping costs. You know, who were who uh, waiting a little extra time for the diaper was more worth but, it than getting that, it tomorrow. Okay, well, that makes me even more confused because they were asking for a $50 membership fee up front. Well, the idea is that you get a 50 Yeah, but the idea was that you save 200 over the year. It's like going to Costco again. I'm just saying people who are, you know, it's really strapped for money. But anyway, that, they're not asking for the membership fee anymore. Yeah, yeah okay. That's true. And I think, I think what happened is that Walmart decided a few years ago more than a few years ago now, that, you know, it was the biggest offline retailer in the world and that 
it was clear that Amazon had become the biggest online retailer in the world and they needed to be able to compete. And so they spent years and years and years and untold amounts of money, probably not $3 billion, but still a lot of money, trying to build themselves an e-commerce site, which has quietly become a large e-commerce site, which probably does more business than Jet.com, but which doesn't really hit Amazon's radar screen and doesn't really compete with Amazon. And so if they ever wanted to have a hope of competing with Amazon, they needed to buy Jet.com, not in the certainty that now they will be able to compete with Amazon because there's no certainty in this world, but in the certainty that if they didn't, they never would. So are they looking for the data or the or the algorithms? I think they're, I think what they're doing is they're making a or the Hail Mary pass. They're saying, if we can compete with Amazon, that's going to be worth just a gazillion dollars to us. And so we are willing to spend $3 billion, which in the context of Walmart's balance sheet is really quite small, on a long odds bet that we'll be able to compete with Amazon. It yeah. might, it probably won't work, but if it does, it will be so valuable to us, it will be more than worth I'm it. I'm just wondering what, what part of Jet.com is valuable to them. So this is actually, I, I've been wondering something similar, which is how Jet's going to integrate into Walmart. Because what Jet does is fundamentally very different from Walmart. Jet, again, serves as a marketplace, essentially. They have some of their own, where, I mean, they do have warehouses, they do sell stuff like um, paper towels as well. But... In, in the end, it's not quite the same as Walmart, which has this big network of its own stores and its whole procure. I mean, like what it's known for is its massive procurement process, right? Um, so, I mean, is Jet going to be sort of its own separate thing? Is Are they going to actually kind of integrate the two operations? Are they going to take expertise from one side and build my, it my, in? My guess is that they are going to use the power of the Walmart buyers. Yeah. to get great prices for Jet. like mm -hmm. So the price that Jet pays for this stuff is going to be the price that Walmart pays for this stuff, which is the lowest price in the world. There'll be more of that. So and maybe then, Jet, Jet will be more valuable if it has the Walmart-like shipping. And then, and then on the other side, that it's going to use the Walmart you know, Walmart ha is an incredible technology company. People yeah. forget this. Like There was definitely talk on Twitter after this came out that this was, you know, a bunch of rubes in Bentonville, Arkansas, no. who um, who were blinded by Silicon Valley, you know, unicorns. And they're like, ooh, Silicon Valley, you're amazing. We're just going to throw money at you. The fact is that Walmart is unbelievably technologically sophisticated. I mean, at least as sophisticated as Amazon in, in a huge amount of, like, in, in the deeply important um, logistics space. They're, oh, up, they're, they're up there with a with Apple in terms of how they manage to do sort of just-in-time Especially just-in-time scheduling for their employees, which is which is <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, so, but they obviously saw that Jet had a bunch of technology that was valuable to them. And also, as Jordan says, a complementary brand whereby people are going to be willing to buy things on Jet.com who might feel a bit funny buying something on Walmart.com. But that, you know, it's it might not even happen. The, question, the last question which I have about this hypothetical deal is if it actually happens, is that a failure or a success for, for Law and for Jet.com? Well, when I was interviewing, they really seemed to want it to compete with Amazon. And I kind of wanted them to succeed. I mean, we don't want Amazon necessarily to have infinite power. But I would I would say that this is a failure on that on that end at least.
Yeah, it's it's interesting. The New York Times article about this deal said it was kind of humbling to Jet. And the one of the authors, Mike Isaac, and I got into a conversation about that. And he said, you know, humbling is bringing, bringing something back from the Latin meaning bringing back to earth, right? Bringing expectations back to earth. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they have failed in their cosmic goal of taking on one of the five giant corporations in, you know, American industry right now. Um, but on the other hand, a $3 billion exit isn't going to make any of their investors too upset. I believe the last funding round had it at like a B or something like that. A billion. 1.3, I think. 1.3. And, and, and in terms, I mean, the thing which I'm fascinated by is this idea of like annualized income. Like for for Mark Law, the you know, the founder, the amount of money he's made in one year is just mind-boggling. And I feel like on an annualized basis, it's probably at least as much as Jeff Jeff Bezos or like Mark yeah. Zuckerberg or anyone like that. Yeah, I mean, well, it's let's a, calm down until it actually goes that, through. Exactly. But it, it does bring up the following thought experiment. I I'd love like thought experiments. Okay. What, They're my favorite thing. Me too. What would it take to actually compete and win against Amazon? And on that question... Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. If Amazon is the 900-pound gorilla of e-commerce and it's impossible to compete against them, then we all know what the equivalent is in car sharing, right? We do. We do. It's Uber. It is in most of the world, but there's one country in the world where it's not. An important country. The most important country. (laughs) Um, The most important country for ride sharing by far is China. Why is it the most important country? It's the most important country for a couple of reasons. Number one, that ride-sharing in general works in dense urban areas, Mm -hmm. and China has more dense urban areas than any other country in the world. That's very true. It's also damn Um, big. It also (laughs) works really well when you can use it as an alternative to car ownership. And China is at a point in its development where a majority of the people still don't have cars. But like, they might have in, in, money. In the United States, there's only one city in the U.S. where a majority of households don't have cars. That's in New York. It's, it's standard for people to own their cars. And if you own a car, the incentive to use Uber goes down. If you don't own a car, then, then you start weighing it out and say, should I buy a car or should I just use ride-sharing the whole time? And so if you get in there when you can just use ride-sharing instead of owning a car, then the entire country becomes based on ride-sharing rather than on the car ownership. So that's the other reason why China is so incredibly attractive to Uber. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, So for those two reasons, and plus, of course, the fact that it's got a billion people and, you know, only India comes even close in terms of population, um, for for those reasons, it's the huge brass ring that everyone in ride-sharing wanted to win. And, Including Uber. And, and this is a this is a winner-takes-all market, as we have seen in the US and in many other markets, that it's ne- it's all about network effects and, the, and liquidity. And so you want to be the number one biggest thing because that's who everyone wants to use, and it's very hard to be a sort of number two competitor. We're going to come back to that because I actually am going to push back on that, but I do want to hear what happened no. in China Okay, first. so in China, there was a 
big fight between um, the two big car sharing companies, which were both based on taxi networks. And they got, they were fighting very, very viciously with each other and lost billions of dollars sort of subsidizing each other. And eventually they merged. So um, for our listenership, the difference between taxi companies and ride sharing is that the one has an app and the other one doesn't? Well, so in, in China, there basically is no difference. Okay. And so what happened is that you, after the merger, you had this huge number one monopoly called Didi Chuxing. And Didi Chuxing has a vast chunk of the market and it's almost impossible to compete against. And Uber, being incredibly arrogant and incredibly rich, decided we're going to go in there and compete against them anyway because the potential of the money that we could make if we do manage to win is so enormous it's worth trying. So they lost a billion dollars a year for two years. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's fascinating. They were just basically massively subsidizing these right. fares. They're just paying drivers and not making it back. Right. So this is this is where I'm going to come back to this network effect that seems to be all-powerful. Because I read the story about how Uber would compete by saying, you know, basically rides today are, are 10 cents. You know, right. they would just do incredible discounts. And what would happen to Didi, in case I can't see that whole, the whole word, um, <laughs> would their ridership would go way, way down. So a lot of the people would opt for Uber on that day of a very serious discount. That seems to me the opposite of a network effect. That seems like, in fact, that the, the, the customers are very fickle. They're the willing to do whatever is cheaper. The switching costs are fairly low. There's, it's why. just download a new app. It's yeah. not very expensive to switch loyalty. I think there there is something to say about that. Although the network effect, as far as, you know, I understand it with ride sharing is stronger with the drivers. That's that's the important part is you have to have. But drivers, the drivers all have multiple apps yeah. going at the same yeah, time. Yeah, they can also switch. They can um, multiple. So, yeah. but yeah, so so Uber, you know, using these techniques and others, competed very hard and spent two billion dollars trying to get a foothold in China and got a foothold in China and got a good twenty percent of the market, which was much better than anyone thought they would. Um, but then they realized that the only way they could continue to compete in China would be to continue to lose a billion dollars a year in perpetuity. And while they probably have the cash to be able to do that, and they had the ability to do that, number one, it was far from clear that they would ever actually win. Yeah. It was far from clear that they would ever be able to make money. And most importantly, it was increasingly obvious that these enormous losses in China were preventing them from going public here in the United States. That just because of this one market, the entire rest of their business, which is worth 60-some billion dollars, was being prevented from its natural next step, which is an IPO. But we just, I mean, okay, color me confused, because we've discussed how, like, these guys kind of avoid going IPO. Like, is that actually their goal? So... They, there's no particular reason why Uber as a company should be public. It has all of the money it needs. It doesn't need to raise money in the IPO market. It already has, I think, a balance sheet of something on the order of $10 billion. It doesn't need more. Um, so that's not why they need to go public. However, they do have a lot of investors who want a return on their investment. And in fact, recently it's been almost explicitly raising bridge investment to an IPO. It's like, give me short-term money, which we'll give you back when we IPO. And a lot of its earlier investors are saying, okay, it's time for us to start getting liquidity. And the only way that you can offer those investors liquidity is by going public. I see. So 
I feel like th- this story, um, and wait, take one time out. Have we actually said that? No, no. So, can, can you, why don't, so, so Jordan, wait. why don't you tell us what happened in China? Yeah. So, I was going to say, I don't think we've mentioned. So, uh, Uber sold. I mean, Uber sold off to, Di- I can't pronounce Didi Chusheng. Didi Chusheng. Did I actually get the pronunciation? Pretty Didi, much. Didi and, Didi they, and they did a, yeah. they got a reasonably good deal. Yeah. They wound up with, 17% of the combined company, 17% equity in the combined company, which is a, an impressive thing. And they got an investment from Didi Chuxing. And now they're not losing money in China anymore. So they're a much healthier company. This deal looks pretty good for Uber, even though it does mean that Uber is not going to yeah. be a competitor in China. Yeah. I mean, long term, having equity in the having a 17% equity in, a, in what's probably going to be the dominant ride sharing uh, firm in in China can't be a bad thing. I do probably th- make back their two billion investment yeah. <laughs> one one of these days. But I, and, and in, and in yeah. fact, people are saying that oh. now, in terms of the IPO, China has gone from being a bug to being a feature. Yeah. That um, you know, when in terms of the IPO, investors didn't want to buy a company that was losing a billion dollars a year in China, but they do value Didi Chuxing at probably you know something in the you know tens of billions of dollars and that uber's 17 percent stake in that is worth quite a lot of money to them now and so they're willing to pay extra for it so I feel like it, oh, oh, go ahead yeah so th- there are kind of like two sides of the story right um because i feel like this is yet another chapter in the, the the long ongoing tale of american tech companies trying to break into the chinese market and sort of um, often failing and so on the one end you know actually there are some ways in which uber has succeeded here they they gave it a go they competed. They didn't actually take the market, but now they own a good chunk of the company that did. So that is a, a, a you know hard success, right? On the other hand, we see yet another instance where you know, like Google before them, like you know, so like Facebook, um, Twitter is having has it, these issues. I mean, they go to China, and it's a combination of going up against a big entrenched competitor, and also just cultural issues. One of the things that Uber seems to have found here was that they were dealing with all sorts of kind of dirty tactics they had never seen in the U.S. As bad as things got here, partly um, because they'd never actually faced anything like that kind of competition. So in they the learned. US. They learned dirty yeah. tricks. I so. mean, there were things like, well, one thing, for instance, was that um, there was this whole kind of cottage industry of scammers who were <laughs> figuring out ways to get the, the ride subsidies that were supposed to go into drivers without actually offering rides to anybody. Um, so, and it turned out it seemed like it was getting worse for Uber than it was for Didi Chusheng. Um, and then on top of that, they had things like their like phantom text messages were going out to their drivers saying Uber was being canceled in China. I mean, there were all these weird kind of again, you know, like, I've had, I've had kind like of lots of theories uh, going on. Yeah, I've had some theories in the past about like how. Uber drivers can game the algorithms for yeah. for like uh, surcharges. I mean, sorry, what is it called? Surge. Surge charging. Yeah, yeah, surge pricing. And I feel like th- th- probably in China, they actually really did those things. <laughs> I, so, so, but what we have wound up with now is, I mean, for all that Didi um, was trying to create this kind of anti-Uber coalition around the world and it invested in Lyft and this kind of thing, we have pretty clearly reached I mean, the end game here is pretty clear that there's two dominant monopolies, one in China and one in the rest of the world. and Which is a pattern that plays out a lot and, in a lot and, of industries. And this is going to be very interesting in terms of um, antitrust globally. Yeah. yeah. So that was so that brings me to my new thought experiment because we really didn't answer the question, right? What we have here is we have um, the monopoly in China sort of 
resisting the com- competition from the only only company that we thought might be able to actually do it, which is Uber. So from the perspective of like customers, right, it's much better for them when there was competition, et cetera, et cetera. And now that there's like a clear winner, which is Didi, um, what's going to happen to them? Like when are they, how, how will they ever have hope for a really competitive field ever in the future? I, I feel like when you have a natural monopoly like this, the chances of, having competition are pretty slim like there's no one who competes with google in search there's no one who complete competes with walmart in sort of physical retail it's pretty hard to compete with amazon in e-commerce and you get these natural monopolies um and a lot of the time one of the reasons they become a a natural monopoly and one of the reasons they retain that monopoly is because they behave in pretty consumer-friendly ways. You can say as much as you like about how horrible Walmart is for its employees, but it is good for consumers and it does give them low prices. And as long as it does that, it's the fact that it doesn't have a lot of competition is not particularly harmful to consumers. Yeah. So as long as they do that. But let, let me just, like, theoretically, if somebody wanted to compete with Walmart, they would probably not be able to do it on the scale of Walmart. So they'd probably start small fry. They would say, I can't compete with Walmart in every way, but I can compete with them on, say, washing machines or whatever it is. Yeah. And then they would compete with Walmart on washing machines. And what would happen? Walmart cuts prices. So Walmart that, would cut prices for a very short amount of time, buy them up, and then it would be gone. So that that's actually a kind of a, a tricky problem with antitrust regulation in general, right? Because we think of these, we have these giant companies that are kind of general stores, right? Amazon, Walmart. And they're not necessarily a monopoly in any one market. Um, they are not necessarily the dominant player in washing machines. So their behavior in the mar- in the washing machine market might not actually raise antitrust concerns. How because again they're just kind of this general retailer. Uh, they don't have ninety nine percent of the washer and dryer sales in this country. Um, so at the same time, though, we look at this and you know it just seems on its face like yeah, this should raise some kind of antitrust issue because you have these giant retailers that can just take losses. On you know, it's their one ability to product. shoulder losses in yeah. order to like get rid of competitors. And That's so, a problem. I think there there de- there should be some kind of. I think in the future we're going to have to think about these how we adjust the way we think of com- competition issues to to account for that. And I think what you wind up with is the utility model that yeah. Uber becomes a regulated utility, and that regulators can regulate it as a transportation provider in much the same way as they might regulate. A bus network, you know, so uh, a, a private bus network. So you, so I feel like there is a solution to this, but I also feel like the uh, the, the sort of dream of market based competition um, being being the means by which consumers are served is has gone out the window. Yeah. That it's, we're, we're in the world of monopoly now. I, so, I, capitalism is dead, basically. Well, <laughs> I think also that's that's tricky. The idea of um, you know. Instinctively, I agree that, yeah, the the, the solution here is to treat these companies like utilities. But Uber has been so resistant to (laughs) any sort of regulation. And it's extremely difficult to to regulate an inherently local company like Uber that's lots of local nodes on a a federal level. So instinctively, I agree with you that the solution here is to regulate them like a utility. But that's incredibly difficult to imagine how that will play out because one uber is incredibly resistant to any sort of regulation at the local level they're willing to pull out of places like austin for instance um and you can't really regulate them federally because uber essentially consists of little versions of itself all around 
different local markets. So I, I don't know how the the utility model would actually play out with a company like this. I think I think we're we're learning that with yeah. Airbnb, and I feel that if and when that problem gets solved, and you're right, this problem hasn't been solved yet. Um, I feel like Airbnb is the first company where it will be solved, and, mm-hmm. and Airbnb is much friendlier in general towards regulators. Um, then that model might be able to get ported over. We will see. We'll see. Kathy O'Neill. Yes. So today we're going to talk about um, this new Massachusetts law, which is really interesting to me. And I think probably won't solve the problems it's set up to solve, but might have like interesting unintended consequences. So what is the law? The law says <clears throat> that it's now illegal for an, a prospective employer to ask someone there who's applying for the job, how much did you make at your last job? It's not illegal for the prospective employee to volunteer this information, but it is illegal for them to be asked for that information. Right. Yes. Then the second thing, uh, which is kind of the flip of side of that, is that the uh, the new the new job ha- the the salary for the job that they're applying for has to be posted, so there has to be transparency on what the actual salary is. But so so th- the first question which I have is: Let's say I apply for a job which pays a hundred thousand dollars a year. That's posted. Yeah, and then I go in for the interview, and I'm like, I really like this job. Um, I've I've got to tell you right now, I'm earning one hundred and twenty grand a year. Um, and so if you offer me 100 grand a year for it, I even though I really want it, I probably won't take it. And then they go, well, Felix, we think you're amazing. And they offer me 130 <laughs> grand a year. That's cool, right? They're allowed to that's offer me point. more yeah, than the posted they, they salary. Have, they're allowed to do that, yes. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah, that's yeah. one of many ways. I, I mean, I think this is a cool law, and I think we'll discuss why. Um, but I, I don't think it's foolproof. I mean, another thing I... I imagine will happen is a lot of companies will kind of lowball some of their offers. They're going to keep it on the low end of the range mm-hmm. um, to avoid accidentally over-offering online. Interesting. Well, okay, so let's go into like the argument for this yes. law. The argument for this law is that it's going to help uh, decrease the wage gap yes. uh, between men and women in particular. And the idea there is that um, men and women are different at negotiating. So there's two different things about it. One is that women and men are different at negotiating. Women especially do not ask for as much as men and often do not get what men get in negotiations. And partly that's because they don't ask, partly because when they do ask, they're punished like they're hated for it. Um, the other, so that that's part of it. That's one of the reasons for transparency. So you just have the the idea being, if the wage is transparent, then you don't have to negotiate. And you guys just made the point that that's actually not true. The other thing is um, being asked what you made at your last job means that any kind of wage gap that already exists is sticky. Like yeah. it's very hard to get over it. A woman cannot get over it by saying, "I'm going to go to another company that pays me better," because they're kind of they their history kind of travels with them because they're being asked, "How much did you make?" And then if they tell the truth, then they're they're going to keep having that wage. Problem. And I have uh, I have definitely worked at companies where this is the case that there is a job that we have wanted to fill, and there is a candidate who we've wanted to fill it, and HR when it goes to HR, they're like, well, we have to offer that candidate some relatively small bump over what they're earning right now. If it was a guy who was earning lots of money, they would be willing to pay more. But since it's a woman who was earning a relatively small amount of money, they're not willing to pay as much because they're like, well, we can get that person for less, so why should we pay more? Exactly. That's the reasoning, and it, generally speaking, works. By the way, I have been asked how much I made at the last job, and I just simply don't answer. I don't know why people are willing to answer this, but, but but actually I do. Like, so here's what I did. Well, 
I did a thought experiment about this. Another thought experiment. Yeah, because that's what I do. That's that's <laughs> <laughs> that's Kathy right there in a nutshell. I thought about what it would be if if all this all this like data is completely transparent. You know, we we would have um, you know, like LinkedIn. Imagine going to LinkedIn and seeing not only the job listings but all the numbers associated with it. And imagine these are true salary offers. Like, what would I do? I would I would say, please sort this by salary, right? Yeah. And I would I would look at the highest salary for which I am qualified, and I would try to use this information essentially to create a, a, a an auction. Um, for the people to raise their salaries to compete with this one, I think I can get so right. That, that's, that's the that. Yeah. Me, but what that means is, I think I have power in this negotiation. And when I think about it, when I think about the people who don't, when, when I think about like minimum wage jobs, they don't actually have posted salaries on LinkedIn, but they might as well have because it's minimum wage, right? Yeah, people who earn like hourly wages tend to have no compunctions whatsoever in terms of telling people how much they earn. It's right. it's no big deal. The the whole like weird confidentiality and secrecy around pay is a very white collar thing. It's a very white collar thing. That's, that's what it, this thought experiment made me realize that my happiness at there being transparency or potentially being transparency was is completely irrelevant to people who are working like hourly wages. In fact, the transparency for them makes it less competitive. I think it's actually a not a good thing for them. Interesting. The uh, one so- thing which I want to add is that this is good for an unexpected group of people. Millennials, because I have an argument about why it's good for millennials. Okay, well, f- first of all, why is it good for millennials? So I, the nice thing about this law is it, it's not just good for women. It's it's good for anybody who has had an early career setback that limited their pay for some reason. And for millennials who gra- may have graduated, say, between 2008 and 2012 into a pretty down economy, mm-hmm. um, that's the kind of thing that will haunt you later in your career. There yep. have been lots of research showing that if you graduate into a recession, 10 years later, you're still feeling the effects in your pay. You're making less than someone who didn't graduate into a recession who's basically equivalent. Um, and so, you know, this could actually erase some of that gap. It's 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 designed to deal with a gendered issue, but I think it has implications well beyond. Uh, exactly, because it it fixes the this, the pay discrimination on the grounds of age as well as on the grounds of gender yeah. that there is this. I mean, again, what's something we have all come across, I'm sure, is employers saying, like, we should get some blah, 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 young person to fill this job. And when they say young, they cheap. don't mean young. They mean cheap. They, yeah. the, the two go together in their head. Yeah. Um, and maybe this would help. Like, if you think about the job first and then think about how much you want to pay, then, you know, it might actually help older people who want that job who, you know, are willing to get paid relatively low amounts of money, or you know, the same amount that... Uh, younger person would be willing to earn but they kind of get overlooked because in the mind of the hiring person they want a young person yeah yeah there's it's all sorts of things that are interesting about this but the one the one one which i wanted to bring up because i can't i've been thinking about this for a while is i know a bunch of people and this is um this was recently in in a sort of new york times workologist column as well who want to get a lower paying job than they have right now. They're like, I have this like super high stress um, job right now, which takes me away from my home too much or too many hours or I, it's too much management and I want to go back to actually doing stuff instead of managing people and I want to like move back down the org chart a bit. And it's really hard for people to do that. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that, that goes right into what I wanted to, to mention, which is I looked into the question of, 
according to famous, you know, economists like Claudia Golden, like, would this actually uh, address the the wage gap? Yeah. Um, and I think the answer is pretty much very, very little, if at all. And um, I think in the ways we've discussed, it will sort of incrementally affect it in a positive way. And I think it's a good idea for millennials as well as for yeah. women. But but when you think about what is the wage gap really, what she did, Claudia Golden, she had this great Vox piece, or maybe she didn't, but her work was re- referred to. Um, she looked at the wage gap over time, and it's white collar workers. But the, like basically the wage gap for young people right out of like a business school degree mm-hmm. is relatively small, women versus men. And then by the time nine years later, it's 60%. Yeah. Like women make 60% of what men do. It, it's enormous. But if you didn't have children, if, you're, if, you, if you divide, if further divide the groups into three groups, women with children, women without children, and men, men, then the women without children make 94% of what men do. It's like yeah. almost entirely about the kids. And, and, and this, final is, this thing, is the point that Ivanka Trump was making. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. The final thing is the wage gap closes again in women's 50s and 60s. So yeah. they actually start. Yeah. Like, so her theory is like, Actually, women aren't bad at negotiating because they negotiate early on. They negotiate later on. It's in the middle when they're having kids that they're screwed. I, I do think that this does – and that, that that study was specifically about business school grads too. Yeah, so, that's true. But the um, – I do think this erases some of the golden problem because the uh, you know let's say you get off the treadmill for six six months to take care of your kids right then you come back to your consulting firm or whatnot and you've kind of lost some promotion opportunities but you still fundamentally have the same skills as the other guy and maybe you know you're you're you have the same title and the same basic job but you're making less. Um, if you both then go for a job at a, the same new employer who can't ask you what you're making, um, this should help. That's right. Th- and I'm not saying so, it's a bad idea. Yeah. But I want to get back to the the sort of Claudia's conclusion, yeah. uh, which goes right to, to, to Felix's thing about people who want to actually earn less. She said the, the way that really unequal pay happens is in specific industries yeah. like business um, where working extra hours and in particular working uh, child care hours – is unreasonably um, rewarded. Yeah. So it's not just like if you work 10 hours instead of eight hours, not just rewarded because you have those extra two hours, but like actually those extra two hours are the critical hours to become the, a big dick. The idea is that working longer out, the more hours you work, the more you make per hour in those industries. The, yeah, yeah. And it's exponential. So if you yeah. make, if you, if you consistently work 10 hours instead of eight hours a day, you make three times as much as people work eight hours a day. Yeah, this isn't going to fix everything about the wage gap. I, I do think, though, that this is... Wait, wait. Can, can you not interrupt but, me? So, so the, 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 the goal that Claudia... And Claudia mentioned this this fact, and she also mentioned that some uh, industries have changed. They used to be like that, but they're no longer like that. So her actual thing is to make more industries more like that. So what, how does it, what does it mean to be more like that? It means make your industry so that... It, it doesn't matter exactly which hours you work or how many hours on a given day you work, but that you, you do good work. Yeah, I mean, the, the golden idea of making everything work like a pharmacy and every worker being substitutable with another worker, it's, yeah. it's a little bit, the thing about it is it's, it's a little bit utopian. I mean, I, I, love the, I love the research that went into it and I've written about it, but, you know, I think that, again, it's that kind of thing's a long way off, whereas the sort of thing that Massachusetts is doing is something concrete. I actually disagree. I think now. It, but basically what she's saying is if you commodify a job. Yeah, it's really hard to it commodify. It becomes more equal. It's really hard to commodify certain jobs, especially the ones. And it, it, and I mean, that's a that's a long evolution that you're talking about in industries. Well, it's but interesting. I also, I also think that it's 
easier than people like to admit. The 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 people in those jobs love to think that they're uniquely capable of doing their jobs and they're not in anything commodifiable. But honestly, yeah, it's agreed. probably commodifiable. I'm, I'm totally with Every, you. Everything except for like fund management, really. Well, <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk <laughs> about that. To be continued. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is now the numbers round. And I feel that Kathy should go first with her number. Okay, I have um, a, a crazy number, which is very boring, but crazy. 50%. Mm-hmm. So 50% of people in an emergency evacuation on an airplane grab their bag and this is against explicit instructions by the flight attendants and the pilot leave behind your bag they're they're, they're free riders right they're like if no one else grabs their bag i can grab my bag and get also get safe and have my yeah so they did a study on this and these are like real emergencies not like we're practicing here and they did like they did um 80 they they found a bunch of examples with like videotape evidence of people Grabbing their bag, like slowing down the flow of people, like, and this is it's 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 mind boggling. It's dangerous. It's crazy, and it's like we well, have to choose between your life and your laptop. You choose your laptop consistently, well, but also like <laughs> on an individual level, I can understand the the logic. Although I'm sure it's not like thought through in that in a, in an actual emergency, but the logic is that you know that person in front who's holding me up by grabbing their bag is costing me my life potentially yeah but me grabbing my bag is probably not going to cost me my life it might cost the person behind <laughs> me their lives yeah. thank you for that that you really broke it down for me <laughs> I've, had, I've had this conversation with myself so many times about whether or not i would grab the bag on the plane and the now answer is no i think and don't now, do it Jordan. Yeah, and now i'm I, every time i have that that inkling, I'm just going to think of Kathy's disapproving layer. I, I, no, you know what? I want there to be a law. I want the federal law to be, to be like, the steward, the flight attendants can be like, if you grab your bag, I will shoot you in the head. <laughs> and then maybe <laughs> people won't do it. But that's also going to, that that's going to slow down the line too. <laughs> All right. My number is 119,756. Wow. Which is a good number. I feel like that's one of the best numbers we've had in a while. It's a good number. 119,756 is the number of Bitcoin that were stolen from Bitfinex. Bitfinex. So you may or may not remember that the world's biggest Bitcoin exchange, Mt. Gox, got hacked uh, a while back. And so now there's been a bunch of other Bitcoin exchanges which aren't nearly as famous or as well known as Mt. Gox. But the biggest of them all and the number one Bitcoin exchange in the world is this one called Bitfinex. And what happened? It got hacked. And 119,756 Bitcoin was stolen from it, which works out to, depending on the value of Bitcoin this second, um, somewhere in the region of $65 million. 
And I the this I, is all about keeping track of stuff. Like, how could someone steal so, it? So, I, a theory I've I've seen about blockchain now is that the inherent problem with it is that the more nodes you have on a network, the easier it is to hack it. Essentially, there's more opportunities to hack it, and since blockchains are about distributing a network, um, that leaves it open to security threats. So, the fun. fact is that virtually every major Bitcoin-based anything has suffered some kind of fraud or. Um, you know, theft or something like that. And if anyone really believes that they have unhackable security and that their Bitcoins won't get stolen, all I can say is think again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so my number is 880 billion. That's the number of assets under management, according to the Financial Times, in the computer-powered hedge fund industry. Um, and what does that mean exactly? It's like, Apparently, it's kind of a combination of hedge funds that are basically just trading on algorithm. Like They have developers who come up with an algorithm that's going to look at the market and look, say, okay, do this with bonds today. That would be like Rentech, something yeah. like that. And then the other half is sort of like the computer-assisted part, where you have people who are, you have human traders who are still making decisions, but they're heavily influenced by what the program's telling them. Well, wouldn't that be like everyone? That's kind of what I'm wondering. I was going to say, so, this isn't... This, I mean, so is, is, is that like every single trader so, with a Bloomberg? So this is, is not a thing. So this is what I, I wanted to bring up, is how much of this is just marketing and how much of this is real. I'm curious. And to the extent that it's real, I'm wondering how much it actually kind of commodifies... Well, I mean, it you know it does make traders... It, it doesn't just commodify them, I guess. It makes them obsolete in a way, and the, the real value in the industry becomes the programmers. But um, I, I, just, I just feel like this has been going on for... 25, 30 years. I mean, yeah, this no. is ever since Mike Bloomberg invented his terminal, which would allow you to use a computer to trade bonds better. You know, yeah. I think it's, I think it's. So, what is the actual figure? 880 in the billion. Com- in the computer powered hedge fund, 880 billion of assets under management. So, my impression is from what I've seen is it's more about the actual computers doing the trading themselves. Mm-hmm. So, that, that seems like the, that is the kind of. You know, and that's just, that's a lot of, of high frequency trading there, which you know. But I feel like high frequency trading doesn't have a huge amount of direct AUM. Yeah, but yeah, no. I think I think I'm I'm with Jordan is that this is a largely meaningless number. Yeah, I'm going to go with I, that too. So okay, but well, I still want to kind of come back to it later. I think we'll, we'll come back to it at some point, but not this week because that's it for us this week. I'm sorry, but no more slate money this week. No more scuttlebutt. No more scuttlebutt. Uh, Thank you all for listening to Slate Money and do subscribe because that way you get to listen to all of them. Just search for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave us a review there. Tell everyone how wonderful we are. Write to us. The email address is as ever, slatemoney at slate.com. Many thanks to Virilyn Williams in D.C. who produced this this week, to Steve Lichtai, who's also in D.C., who's the executive producer. Maybe they're going out for a drink or something later. Um, Thanks to the executive producer, Andy Bowers, the other executive producer, the guy who runs the entire panoply empire, which can be explored at itunes.com slash panoply. And, yeah, we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.